Good morning, everybody. For those of you who don't know me, because I can see a whole number of faces that I don't know, uh, my name is Steve Jones, and uh, I have the privilege of leading Oxford Community Church, this wonderful, wonderful group of people. If you've not yet discovered how wonderful this group of people is, just hang around a bit longer, and it will become clear to you, uh, because there's a lot of love and a lot of spiritual life and a lot of wisdom that God has graciously put into uh, into the people that are gathered here today. All right, wasn't it good to sing a song by Kevin Prosh? Did any of you? Yes, it was. Some of you are like, who was Kevin Prosh? Well, we set that song about the banqueting table. Some of you may be too young to know that, um, that we didn't always sing songs in the style that Hillsong and Bethel and that now deliver for us. Um, there was a man called Kevin Prosh, and with a tremendous gift of creativity, God used him to change, not alone, but he was a big part of changing the face of what uh, sung worship is like uh, in the church in the West, certainly. So if you've never come across Kevin Prosper, can I encourage you, expand your streaming repertoire from... Hillsong and Bethel and whatever else you may have, look up Kevin Prosh and go back to the source, a great outpouring of God's creativity, and see what you learn about worship, something a little bit more raw, perhaps. And, um, you know, when I was um, leading OICU, the University Christian Union, back in the day, that was when that song about the banqueting table first came out, and it caused all kinds of bother, (laughs) because we sang that bit about you do all things well, just look at our lives. And I don't know if it was because they were students and young enough to know, well, just a certain humility around, well, we've got a long way to mature still, or whether there was just some disbelief about God's goodness, I don't know. But there was a great deal of argument about that line, how can we sing, look at our lives? And yet, as we're going to see in the passage this morning, there's an expectation that there would be a goodness seen in our lives that people could discern and be grateful for. Our lives are meant to radiate with something of what God is like in a way that is a testimony to the spiritual reality that has been from all eternity and will be for all eternity, that there is a good and loving God who sits on the throne of the whole cosmos. So I was delighted to sing that this morning, reminded of a few tussles of yesteryear, and uh, grateful for faith to believe that we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And I really appreciated the way in which Chris led our praying at the end of our time of worship to put that on our lips. We will see the goodness of the Lord in the different practical aspects of life. Now then... A growing church. We are in a series on the book of 1 Thessalonians, uh, the, letter to, the first letter to the Thessalonians. And if you haven't yet found that in your Bible, uh, then turn your Bible on and, uh, or flick it open if you've got that previous technology and uh, find the first letter to the Thessalonians. We've only got a few verses to look at this morning. Um, as you're heading there, um, let me just remind you what we've been saying about being a growing... What, is, what kind of growth is in God's heart 
for his people. And there's at least these different things, that we would grow to maturity. There's a promise of being made complete in Christ, of becoming fruitful and resilient and not blown about by every little thing that happens in life and being mature in Christ. And Oh, God, we want to grow to maturity in Christ. There's also a prayer for growth in the extent of God's kingdom, different people groups. Um, It's Jack and Claire's last Sunday with us this morning before heading back to where they normally live, which is amongst a people group in Africa where the gospel has not gone, um, except they're there. (laughs) And taking so we believe in that. You know, we're praying for you that you would be part of the growing extent of God's kingdom. There's also God's kingdom to be extended here too. Some of the people have come from those nations here, but also workplaces and different aspects of culture, the people all around us, anywhere where God's kingdom hasn't gone. And that, of course, leads to a growth in the numbers of people that are being blessed by knowing Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We've been praying all of those things. In this series from 1 Thessalonians, we keep seeing how Paul and Silas and Timothy, in writing this letter, have an expectation of growth. They're grateful for what growth has gone on, but looking for more. Uh, The first half of this letter talks about the love that is shared between Christians. And then, as we got to last week, the beginning of chapter 4 marks a change, and Paul starts to name a couple of the things that are still lacking in the church. Last week, Ruth spoke about the first of those. What One thing that was lacking was some sexual continence. They were somewhat incontinent sexually. They couldn't help themselves, it seemed, in certain ways. They were immoral, and Ruth spoke about that last week. This week, we get to, uh, in these verses, I just could not help the next slide. Forgive me, um, but I couldn't help putting up a picture of a sloth. Because this week, we're looking at what Paul and Silas and Timothy address around slothfulness people's unwillingness to work. Uh, I used to volunteer for the Citizens Advice Bureau, giving advice to people about their basic legal rights. And uh, in the last season of my doing that, I did that in the Asian Cultural Centre that's just next to the central Oxford Mosque uh, on Mansell Way, somewhere down the Cowley Road, for those of you still getting used to the anatomy of the city. And so many of the people that I found myself offering advice to were Muslims. And one day I had a fascinating gentleman come in um, who would rightly be described as a sponger. You might think I'm being harsh, but one of the wonderful things in Islamic culture is the teaching that if someone comes and knocks on your door and asks for hospitality, you have to put them up for three nights. And so a good Muslim family will do that. If you knock on their door, they will put you up for three nights in a row. After that, their duty to you is discharged. But this gentleman had lived his entire adult life that way. He just kept going round the Muslim community, uh, knocking on people's door, I'll have my three nights, and won't you be blessed because you can dispense this charity and hospitality to me? the end of the three nights, he'd put everything back in his suitcase and go and knock on another door. And literally, and, you know, enjoying people's food, enjoying people's beds, 
enjoying that wonderfully warm hospitality for his entire adult life. That's how he lived life. I can't even remember what his question was, and if I could, I shouldn't tell you because it was a confidential thing, Uh, but that much I remembered. And it seems that back in this church in Thessalonia, there were some people that were living something like that. There were people in the church. It's not that they couldn't work, but that for some reasons, they would not work. Not only that, but with all that spare time they then had, they were somehow hassling and disturbing other people. And it's to those people that Paul writes, uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy Right, I'm going to read the few verses in just a moment, but first of all, just say that there are various theories that theologians have written to say, well, why was it that some of these church members would not work and lived as disturbing sponges? Why did they do that? And various theories have been put forward. The headline answer is that we don't know and they're all speculative, So I'm not going to go over them at length, but actually the different theories put forward by theologians as to why people then might not work probably best reflect something about why modern people don't work. As modern theologians have tried to make sense of that church, it probably tells us something about their reflections on our lives. So I'm just going to name a few. And I want to ask... Oh, I forgot about that. That's the point of this morning... Uh, I'd not forgotten about the point. I'd forgotten about the insects, um, which for those not watching the screen but listening to the tape, we have a picture of two ants. Uh, Not in love, actually, because they're probably sisters. Um, (laughs) Half-sisters, actually, being the nature of ant biology. But anyway... um, what it says there is that work is a way... Sorry, I, I was a biologist once, so forgive me. Work is a way to love. Work is a way to love. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, work as a way to love. But there's a few ways in which our thinking about work can be twisted. Uh, here's one of the things that's been suggested as to what might have been twisted in the minds of some of the Thessalonians, and that was about status. One of the suggestions is that, you know, really only slaves in that culture, did proper work. And anyone who was of any kind of importance, therefore, might expect to be free from doing work and simply to observe or supervise slaves doing the real work. I think there's a, we don't have slaves in that way in our society today. But actually, the snobbery and the ambition for social status that is suggested to have been in Thessalonia 2,000 years ago, that snobbery and ambition for status is alive and well here today. Actually, it's alive and well in some of our hearts, where our attitude to work is that we're working to get on up the ladder. You know, maybe for students, something that's in your heart is working hard at your studies in order to prove yourself, in order to get on life, in life in order to become somebody important. Um, It's not just something that is in the hearts of young adults. It can drive people throughout their careers to always be wanting to get a bit further. I've not yet 
got um, some professional recognition. I've not yet... It just goes on forever, actually. You can get some professional recognition, but I've not yet been knighted. <laughs> and if you've been knighted, well, why not a peerage? And there are levels of the peerage, and there are, it's just... It never ends. An ambitious drive for status is one of the things that can twist our understanding of work and corrupt it. It's another thing that's been suggested is um, sacred secular divide. Let me explain that. It's been suggested that perhaps some of these Thessalonians, they were just so excited about preaching all the time that they didn't feel they had any time for sort of normal work, anything practical. And that's something that sometimes plagues the church, an idea that sweeping the floors is not important and it's really only preaching or praying for people or leading worship that really, really matters. And so sometimes work is looked down, like everyday work is looked down upon because it's not spiritual. Well, that's a nonsense, isn't it? Our Lord Jesus washed people's feet. Fascinating. Jesus uh, resurrected Lord Jesus cooking fish on the beach, tells us in John's Gospel. He doesn't have a problem with cooking for people. I was the resurrected Lord Jesus, which thankfully I'm not. <laughs> For your, I mean, everyone else's sake, that would be awful. Um, I don't think I'd use my resurrection body to barbecue fish. <laughs> Holding the whole of a cosmos in my hands. Our Lord Jesus sets an example of serving. And if nothing else makes it clear, I think that makes it clear that practical service is wonderful and important. There's another thing... Um, that is suggested by theologians for the church in Thessalonica, which is really about despair for this world. The way that it's framed, if you read the commentaries, is that the Thessalonians were so looking forward to Jesus' second coming, like super excited about that, and because of that didn't think it was worth getting on with any work. Well, what's going on there is really it's just not worth doing any work. There's no point doing anything to sort the world out, because, you know, when Jesus comes, he's going to sort it all out. But written into that is a kind of despair about our work achieving anything of lasting value. Now, boy, is that an issue for us today, especially for anybody who's in the public sector with funding cuts continuing and continuing and continuing and continuing. You know, when the credit crunch came and it was clear there wasn't going to be as much money to spend on public services... I think I was not alone in imagining that it would be ideal, wise, for the government to say, since there's less money for the NHS now, at least in real terms, what we'll do is we'll cut some of the standards of service to a point where our staff can actually achieve them. Obviously, that's politically impossible and hasn't happened, and people are being expected to continue delivering as much as ever with fewer resources, and of course want to deliver as much as ever, but... In a number of workplaces, there's an attitude of despair. And some of you go to work week in, week out, and you're bathed in that atmosphere of despair, like this just is going to rack and ruin. It's all falling apart. The wheels are coming off. What is the point? We're just trying to make things work, but it's never going to work. I want to ask, of those differing things, twisted things that can come and plague our attitudes to work, are any of them at play for you? Are you sometimes going to work 
to achieve status, ambitiously driven to work? Are you sometimes, it's another kind of thing altogether, ignoring the work that's in front of you because it seems unimportant in the face of spiritual things, falsely dividing the everyday from the spiritual? Are you sometimes overcome by despair about work and wonder what the point is? Is any of these an issue for you? Well, if they are, here's the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 to 12. Now, about brotherly love, we don't need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. Read that through again. Now, about brotherly love, we don't need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Here's the anatomy, if you like, of the point that's made here. It goes like this. You're doing well. It could be even better. Sort this out, and it will be great. I don't know if in your workplace, perhaps, or in school or something, you've been told the way you give people feedback is you say, it's really, really good. There's this thing that's bad. Uh, but here's something really good. Well, this is the way that this letter does it. does very, something very similar for the whole church community. You're doing really well. Could be even better. Sort this out. And it will be great. So those those are the things that we're going to go through this morning. You're doing well. We'll get to the picture in a moment. The word that's translated here, brotherly love, is the word Philadelphia, after which we now name soft cheese, for reasons that are unclear to me. Uh, The word Philadelphia was used by Greeks to refer to the love that was shared between flesh and blood family. Love, it literally means love for brothers. And what had happened here was that that kind of love, which was normally shared between brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, maybe cousins, was now being lived out in the church. And they were becoming a family that were rightly understood to be brothers and sisters in Christ. We looked at this kind of stuff a few weeks ago. And we sang another old worship classic, even older than Kevin Prosh. 
Uh, We sang, bind us together, Lord, with chords that can't be broken. And it was a precious moment. And there was a sense of like, oh, God, you've given us each other. We're here for each other. We're not just sat in a room for a few uh, minutes a week, but there are brotherly, sisterly, family relationships between us. Now, what was going on in Thessalonia was that, and they were generously giving away the fruit of that to other people. That's what the picture's about. It's a great big handful of fruit being given away. It's like a, a great generosity in the church there on account of the love that they had for each other. Here in Oxford Community Church, I know we don't always get this right, and yet the one thing that people who have moved on from this church most often say when they look back is that we do pastoral relationships really well here. That's what people, they most often, I don't know what other churches people have gone to, but typically when people move on from us to other churches and look back, they say, ah, you and OCC do pastoral relationships really well. We know that now because it's not quite like that where we've gone. So I know that we're not perfect, but I think that actually we do that pretty well And I know that not only is there care amongst us, like it says here, that the Thessalonians loved each other, I know that there's a love that spills out beyond us and beyond our locality. As a church, we support uh, financially and in love and in prayer people in all sorts of places. There's a church on Blackbird Lees in the city of Oxford on a social housing estate that only exists because we continue to support it. That means we give them money to keep them going, living in a place where... Poverty means they wouldn't wash their own face financially. But some of us, it's not just me preaching there, but some of you go and lead worship there, and in all kinds of ways, support and enable them. There's an overflow of love, not just exactly where we are, but out from us. And so I believe God wants to say to us this morning, these verses, they apply to you. About brotherly love, we don't have a need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other, and in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Oxfordshire, at least, and beyond that, to China, praying for the Bickfords this morning. God wants to commend the love that exists amongst us. It's something that he's put there and for which we can be thankful and grateful. You're doing well. We're doing well by the grace of God. Of course, it could be even better. It could be even better There is more and more love. We touched that in our worship this morning. There's more love that God wants to pour out amongst us. I don't know how you respond to words like this. We urge you, do more and more. We urge you, do more and more. That's what it says. That's the word of God. I wonder how you respond to that. I wonder if there's a danger of us responding to it with a certain kind of weariness. It says, I think I'm doing quite a lot already. Really? Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden light. And the way that God works in us is that he changes us from the inside out. So that he expands our hearts more and more to have more love. And then out of that, we act in wonderful ways. These children that are in the picture you can see on the screen are in Romania, where my mother is this week. 
She flew to Romania yesterday. She'd never been on a plane until she got in her, into her 60s, my mother. And then when she retired from being a physio in the NHS, the care that she'd been able to give to people by forcing them to contort their bodies into healthy positions, she needed to find a new expression for that. And I don't actually even know how it happened. Maybe somebody came through their church preaching about it. I don't know. But somehow or other, she became aware of the needs of a community of Roma gypsy children in Romania, and she's out there now dispensing goodness. I was, my dad came to visit us yesterday on the way back from the airport, and he said everybody else who went just had hand luggage. He said your mother had hand luggage in a massive suitcase, and she said I don't know what was in it, and two coats. He said, what do you need two coats for? She said, well, I'm going to leave one of them there. And uh, my dad was saying, I suspect she'll only be bringing the one suitcase back. She'll leave most of it there. What's happened is that a woman who'd spent her whole life living in Britain has had her heart caught with a fresh love. And that fresh love causes her to do utterly new and extraordinary things. It causes her, she has caused, caused her to buy a laptop and learn how to use PowerPoint so that she can go into schools and give presentations to tell other children about what they could do to make a difference to children in Eastern Europe. Um, it means that she's up at dawn in her retired years to go to schools all over Gloucestershire where they live to communicate this message. No one told her to do that. My mother does that because love compels her, because her heart expanded to more people than had been in it before. And so she does it. Father God, would you expand our hearts? As it says here, the Thessalonians could be even better. We could be even better as you expand our hearts. Lord, would you, would you do that? Would you come, increase our love, expand our hearts, put more people in our hearts for whom we would have a genuine love that would compel us in new ways, we pray. Amen. You're doing well. It could be even better. Now, here's the thing to sort out. Here's the thing to sort out. There were some disturbing sponges in the church. They were both living off other people's work and being annoying. <laughs> Let's just go through these three things that it says here. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, that's number one. Mind your own business, number two. Work with your hands, number three. I thought it might be helpful this morning just to show a little bit of my working, because I think sometimes preachers who've done work to get to grips with what a passage means and then just say it can seem a little bit like they've got some kind of magic hotline to the truth. And the wonderful thing is I do have a magic hotline, um, but so do you. It's the same thing. It's the Holy Spirit... Um, can we call him magic? Uh, he's wonderful and mysterious and does all kinds of things I don't understand and yet leads us all into truth. Not only that, but you will have all have access to the same academic concordances and commentaries online that I do. 
So I have no great advantage over you. And I thought, if I show a little bit of my working this morning, it might be helpful. Because this is a question. What does it mean? It says here, um, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. That's a funny old thing, isn't it? Strive hard to live quietly. It's an interesting little phrase. What does that mean? Well, one of the things that you can do to dig into the scriptures is something called a word study, which is simply to ask where there is a word, in this case the word quietly, and we're not sure exactly what it means here, what is it used to mean when it's used elsewhere? And because the New Testament's written in Greek, you do need to look up what that word is in Greek, which the internet will help you with, and find out where is that Greek word used in different places, Is it always translated the same? What is it used to mean? You can go beyond that and you can find out, is there a Hebrew word that is a direct equivalent to that Greek word? You can do that by consulting a thing called the Septuagint, where the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, and therefore you can see where the equivalences lie. And if there's a Hebrew word that means the same thing, which in this case there is, you can then carry on that study back through the Old Testament and say, well, what does that word mean in all of its different settings? So I did that, and you could too, should you be motivated to do so. And what you find is that the word quietly sometimes means not working or active. So in Ruth chapter 3, for example, it says that Boaz will not be able to rest until he's got a job done, and then he can be quiet. So sometimes the word quietly means not working or active. Well, that's interesting, isn't it, in the context of 1 Thessalonians, because it goes on to say work. So that can't be the meaning that's in focus in Paul and Silas and Timothy's minds right now, but it's one of the meanings of the words. There's another meaning, which perhaps is the one that might jump to mind for us most obviously as English speakers reading the word quietly, which is just shut up. Stop talking, be silent. And that's the translation that's given in several places. In Nehemiah, where Nehemiah reads from the law and rebukes the elite people in that society for having abused the poorer people in society, it says they were quiet and had nothing to say. They were brought to silence. In 1 Timothy 2, it's where it says that women should be silent come back to that in just a moment since I've mentioned it now. (laughs) Uh, But if you carry on through the Old and the New Testament, the most often, uh, the most frequent use of this word is with a sense of there not being a war or not being aggression. There not being strife between people. There are loads of examples through Joshua and Judges and in 1 and 2 Chronicles where it says the land was quiet The land was quiet, which meant there wasn't currently a war in progress. And in Proverbs, it talks about it being better uh, to have not much food with peace than to have loads of food with strife in your home. And this word speaks about strife and trouble, about war and aggression. So the the, the most commonly used meaning for this word, these words in Greek and Hebrew, are about avoiding aggression and avoiding being a disturbance. It seems that 
amongst these disturbing sponges, those who are living off other people whilst being able to work, just choosing not to, and at the same time being really annoying and hassling people and being a disturbance, Paul, Silas, and Timothy say, stop being annoying. Quiet and calm down and stop being annoying. Stop being a disturbance. And the next phrase, mind your own business, has a certain kind of ring to it in English. Mind your own business, like keep out. Well, that can't be quite the thrust of it, can it? Because Paul said, you Thessalonians, you love each other. You share stuff. You're together. So mind your own business. What does that mean? Well, if you look at other English translations, that will help. There are some translations into the English language which are a bit more literal, that just take it much more clearly word for word, even if it doesn't read as well in English. The King James is one of those. And it says in the King James, do your own business, which sounds like it might be a toileting thing to me. But um, perhaps more helpful, the New American Standard Bible, the NASB, says attend to your own business. It means take responsibility for yourself. Take responsibility for yourself. It's not about sort of pushing people away. Mind your own business. Don't want to be involved with you. It's like stop fussing about other people and sort yourself out. Take responsibility for your own life. And then this phrase, work with your hands. It's not just a focus on manual labor as if being a plumber was better than being an IT consultant. Because all work involves our hands. You can't do any... I mean, even if you're an academic, you still have to raise that cup of coffee to your lips. <laughs> so all, all, work, all work involves our hands. The focus here is not on doing manual labor rather than other kinds of work, but it's about getting on and doing something useful. And so if we put these things together, what it is that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are saying to sort out is the kind of laziness that, for whatever reason, holds people back from working when they can work. And they say, look, calm down, stop hassling other people, and do some work. Now, it might feel, in saying all of that, that we've traveled quite a long way from all of that stuff about love, like, there's all this stuff about love a minute ago. And now here we are, calm down, stop being annoying, do some work. Seems like we've traveled quite a distance. But in fact, we haven't. Because if we think about God's work, it will help us to see that what will be great about doing all of this is that we'll become more like God in the way that he operates. Let me explain Uh, God's work, having created the world, is to rule it. God is active in ruling the world. That is extending his kingdom. And the scriptures say that that, that, um, God's ultimate purpose is that the whole of the world will be filled with the knowledge of his glory. It says, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. 
Now, importantly, when God's glory is first defined in the Scriptures, it's in Exodus 34, where Moses says, show me your glory. God makes a plan for doing that. And then the revelation that he gives is this, where he declares himself the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love. The glory of God, as revealed to Moses, the first full-on revelation of God's glory is a declaration that he is a God of love and slow to anger, abounding in love. So if God's work is to see his glory over the whole of the earth and his glory is his love, God's work is all about making his love known. God's work is all about making his love known. And that's what we get to do in our work. If we come to the last verse, verse 12. Through this, you may win the respect of outsiders and you will not be dependent on anybody. You will win the respect of outsiders and not be dependent on anybody. We need to just check our hearts with the first of those two points. The thing about gaining the respect of outsiders, if we're not careful, could lead us directly to that twisted motive of ambition. Really helpfully, if you turn back just two pages in your Bible to Colossians chapter 3 and verses 22 to 24, you would read there that it says to slaves who are workers, don't only work to impress your boss, but out of reverence for the Lord. It's the Lord Christ that you're serving. So, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are not here saying work to impress people. They're simply making the observation that if you do work, then it will impress people. But it's not something that needs to guide us. Um, I've heard it put this way recently, which I found very helpful. Thinking evangelistically, we don't serve people in order to convert them to Christ. We serve because we have been converted to Christ. We don't serve people in order to convert them to Christ. We serve because we have been converted to Christ. And that checks our motives. Nonetheless, the letter is very clear. If we do work, we will gain people's respect, and that's a great thing. And then the last point, that if we work, we will have enough money to supply our own needs, earn our own daily bread, And that will be a blessing to other people. It means that our work then becomes an act of love, freeing up other people from having to to supply our needs. It means that if I'm doing the washing up at home, I'm not just doing it to avoid getting nagged or because it's my turn, but that by doing it, I save other people whom I love from having to do it. And so this is not just about earning money, it's about choosing to work in ways that leave other people blessed. Wouldn't it be amazing if in this city of so much knowledge, with such incredible potential to serve the nation and the nations, we could put aside ambition and understand that knowledge is the servant of love? And that whatever we know, God has revealed to us in order that we might more effectively love others. And if our desires for our work were not to earn more money, not to write more papers, 
not to get on further in the world, not to be respected above others, but out of love. To live our working lives, be they in workplaces or at home, out of love. Here's the last point, which is a little sobering. There are two letters in our New Testament written to the Thessalonians. And actually, although they're numbered one and two, we don't know what order they were written in. Number one comes first because it's longer, not because it was written first. And we don't know. But we do know that they were written at some distance of time apart, maybe months, maybe years. And they both address this issue of being work-shy, which means that whichever one was written first, the people didn't change. And it had to be spoken about again. I find that sobering. It would be awful for us to read these verses about work and work as a way to love and not actually to change and to have to come back again and again and again. I think we're going to finish with a moment of prayer in which Al is going to lead us. We pray for ourselves and perhaps also for the city.